In the original schedule, I had planned on looking at that entire passage this morning, but we will just look at uh, the end of chapter 19, just a few verses, verses 45 through 48 this morning, because we really are coming full circle. The beginning of Luke in chapter 2, we read about the baby Jesus being presented in the temple and Simeon and Anna responding with great joy at seeing the Messiah come. And then the boy Jesus, his parents leaving him behind inadvertently and coming back and finding him in the temple. Later, Jesus teaching in the temple. This is a momentous occasion when Jesus re-enters the temple. Let me pray one more time. Father, you have truth for us to see here this morning that we can so easily blow by in our reading and in our understanding of your word. So I pray that you would grant us understanding of your son this morning, grant us understanding of what he is doing, what he is not doing. Grant us more than understanding. I pray that you would grant us repentance. I pray that you would grant us change. I pray that you would grant us freedom from those things which have enslaved us, things which we may not even realize. Please carry me along. Please make my words concise and clear. Most of all, clothe Christ before our eyes. Let our hearts see him that we might be transformed, I pray. Amen. So two weeks ago, we saw Jesus approach Jerusalem, and he wept as he approached the city because he knew its destruction was coming, 70 AD. Today we see the other side of the same emotional coin. The first thing, the first thing that Jesus actually does when he enters the city, he goes into the temple, Luke 19.45, and he cleans house. Flipping over the tables of the money changers, as we read in Mark 11, he drives them out physically. Some merchants were selling pigeons, which was a prescribed sacrifice in the law of God, and then there were money changers. So there were some pilgrims who would travel from a great distance, especially, as we will see, foreigners. And when they got there, in order to buy the pigeons, they'd need to change out their money. So the money changers were there to make a little profit off of that. So were the sellers of the, of the pigeons. Um, and so these merchants, they got a nice profitable system going, and Jesus clears them out. And then for the first time in Luke, we read that the elites want to kill him. But they can't just yet because the people are hanging on his words. Okay, well, there's, there's, I want to get a, a mental two-step out of the way right away that, that we have inadvertently been trained to do here that is wrong. And that is, we say when we see Jesus literally exercising physical violence, a form, of, a form of physical exertion, a force of power that is physical, we say to ourselves, well, that was Jesus. Of course, I, I, I'm not Jesus. I, I'm, I'm not called to that. I'm not Jesus. Okay, but the question is, when do we follow that logic and when do we not? After all, we, we wouldn't say to the little children coming to Jesus, well, that's, not Je that's Jesus, that's not me. I'm, I, I'm, I'm free to continue hating little kids. You know, we, we, we would never say that. 
Never say that. So when do we follow that logic and when do we not? My claim here today is that actually we, we very well should follow Jesus and what he does today because perhaps surprisingly, ironically, it's the same heart. He is actually doing the same thing as when he welcomed the, ch the children. When he said, let the little children come unto me, he's doing the exact same thing there when he, we read in Mark, fashioned a whip and whipped them out. Same thing. So, as his disciples, we are to follow him and imitate him in both. Okay, so let's first look closely at the passage and then its main principle, and then we will apply it to ourselves. Well, a, a word here about Herod's temple. The, the temple that Jesus is walking into was a massive operation. It was basically a gift to Herod, Herod to celebrate Herod's greatness. <laughs> the, the, the blasphemous irony of that escaped everybody, I guess. But the, the, the ancient historian Josephus recorded that on the Passover in the year 66, around 255,000 sacrifices were made there on that Passover. This was a massive operation. And Jesus brings it all to a screeching halt. We'll see why in a moment, but, but just, just notice for a second, Jesus is many things, as we have seen in the Gospel of Luke. And one of them is that he is a stud. <laughs> he is a stud. The Enlightenment version of Jesus, slightly effeminate, flowing flaxen hair, metrosexual Jesus about to smoke a joint, you know, that is not to be found in the scriptures. I don't know where that comes from, but it's not the Bible. It's not the Bible. The same hands that held babies knew how to shape wood into a tool and knew how to find a page in the Bible and knew how to gently touch a prostitute with utter holiness. And those same hands knew how to form rope into a whip and drive those robbers out. Same hands. In other words, a man. A man. A real man. That's the true beauty of Jesus. Not the flaxen hair, but that he is what it means to be a man. So what did these merchants do to deserve this? After all, don't churches have big bookstores and coffee shops and swag marts? Yeah, many do. Many do. Well, two words to describe their sin. Violent perversity. Violent perversity. I get these two words from the two passages that Jesus quotes here in verse 46. It is written, Jesus says, I'm making a pronouncement here that is unchangeable. By the way, he makes his pronouncement off of the Old Testament. The Old Testament. It is written, the first from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 56, verse 7. My house shall be a house of prayer. But, Jeremiah 7, 11, you have made it a den of robbers. Now, when, when Jesus quotes these two passages, he means for us to hear them the way you hear me right now when I'm about to do, when I go, da-da-da-da-da, and then you say, thank you. Yeah, somebody goes to McDonald's. We won't say who, but <laughs> your name will be kept secret. But <clears throat> um, 
we're, we're meant to hear it, not, not atomistically just that verse, but the whole context, that we're meant to hear the whole section of Scripture. This is probably the most common way, actually, that the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament. So when you, when you hear that little, that little part, you're meant to go, oh, and that's meant to bring to mind or to force you to go back and to read that passage in its larger context. Like, like you pick up a sheet by one little pinch point, but you pick up the whole sheet. That's, that's how Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. That's how almost everybody in the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. Um, and so the first comes from Isaiah 56, 7, and this entire section is filled with prophecy about this moment and what's going to happen at the end of Holy Week after Jesus enters the temple. And it begins actually back in uh, chapter 52 of Isaiah, um, God's good news that he will restore his people. How will he do it? It won't be through the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel needs salvation, not needs saving, just like everybody else. Just like everybody else. So it's not the servant Israel that is the nation. It's the servant Israel now boiled down to one single man, Jesus. So when we get to Isaiah 53, if, if you're not familiar with this passage, if, if of, of almost all the passages of the Old Testament, if you don't know what I'm referring to when I say those two words, Isaiah 53, I implore you, Christian, make it a part of you. Make Isaiah 53 a part of you because it is perhaps the most vivid, graphic prophecy of the coming servant, Jesus. I'll begin reading in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. How so? As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Isaiah 52, 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we, could look at, that we should look at him. Jesus had no physical form, like flowing flaxen hair that we should go, oh, what a, is that Fabio? No, that's Jesus. No. Jesus physically was a man. He had, <clears throat> he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that goes before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the hand of the, the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, the Lord, has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see, see what? We'll see in a second, and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. How? He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin, not of himself, but of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Note here in verse 10, it says here, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. When Jesus died on the cross, and made his offering, when his life poured out from him, it says here in those moments that he could see in those moments his offspring, those who would be born of him. Jesus, who was never married, would have offspring, people who would be born again. And those people would have offspring how do I know this? Well, there's, there's three images here of offspring that Jesus saw as he suffered on the cross. The first is in chapter 54, a barren woman who was called to break forth into singing and cry aloud, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who was married. That those who cannot even have children in this life in Christ will have more offspring than they could count as if God is still working out the promise to Abraham that he shall be the father of many nations, huh? And then in chapter, you have to keep reading this some other time. I don't have time, but there's, there's glorious word after glorious word after glorious word in this section. It is a gold mine of glory. But don't have time. Verse 56 Thus says the, chapter 56, forgive me, chapter 56. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. How so? Verse three, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, a man who cannot have children, who cannot procreate, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And here we go. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and hold fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer. For whom? For all peoples. 
The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. In other words, other nations besides just Israel, the Gentiles, even Californians. (laughs) Those are the offspring that Jesus had in his mind when he suffered on the cross. He could see his offspring, and when he saw it, he was satisfied. Satisfied. So, well, uh, this has always been God's plan. This has always been God's plan for his house to be a house of prayer for all the people, for all the nations. So while the crowds of the Jews hang on Jesus' every word, God has bigger plans than that. He is a missionary God to gather all the nations to himself. And this is why the temple, back to Luke 19, the temple of Herod had two courts, an inner court for Jews and an outer court for Gentiles. And guess where the pigeon sellers and the money changers were? In the court of the Gentiles, completely clogging up the place that was reserved for the Gentiles to come in, to be drawn by the light of the glory of God and to see the face of God, to see it and to worship God. They were clogging it up. They were taking up the space specifically reserved by God to extend his sovereign grace to the nations. And thus, Uh, It is no coincidence that Isaiah 56 ends with a passage condemning the elite leaders of Israel. As it is said there, so it's now fulfilled in Luke, they took up that space only to fill their own bellies. And thus Jesus quotes Jeremiah, that they are no better than their fathers, and that the prophecy given to Jeremiah will also be true for them. I'll I'll read a little bit of that, Jeremiah 7, beginning in verse 8. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. The leaders, the elites, were robbers in that they were robbing the nations of their access to God in order to pad their own wallets, in order to get their own comfort. And their robbery was keeping the nations under condemnation. They were standing in the way of God's eternal plan to extend his sovereign grace to the nations. Bad place to be. Bad place to be. They were keeping the nations destined for destruction, which is, in the end, the most violent kind of robbery. They were committing the most violent kind of robbery. So in this light, Jesus is actually showing the utmost self-control as he takes a whip and drives them out. Because he could have called down legions of angels. He could have called down legions of angels. Jesus here is actually acting according to the word. He's actually exercising lex talionis, eye for an eye, actually less than that, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. He is answering their violence with violence. Jesus clears the space, 
And then we read here, Jesus clears the space for the purpose of teaching the word. For the purpose of teaching the word. Note here, not to shame them, not to be right, not to own the libs, not to stick it to the man. He is laser focused with love on one thing, the mission of God that the nations could hear the word, could be taught in the word and pray to him. The great commission that Jesus calls us to was already his commission. <laughs> it was already his commission. And therefore, by definition, this puts him at odds with the elites, the elites who controlled the temple grounds. We read in uh, verses 47 and 48. This, by definition, puts him at odds with them who had placed themselves in God's place, allowing this to happen. Jesus is not at heart aimed at them. Christians, Jesus and Christians, are not by nature rebellious. We are not for rebellion, but we are for the Father's glory among the nations. Which, which then, when we pursue this, by definition, will put us in conflict with the elites of this world. Jesus was not against them per se, but they think he is. And thus, they must destroy him. Thus, there will be inevitable conflict. Jesus knows this going in, and he does it anyway. Does it anyway in love. Okay, so what, 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 is, the, what is the principle here? If we're, if we're to follow Jesus in this, what, what's the principle here? And, and here's, here's how I can put it. Jesus grieved in his spirit over the present and future consequences of sin, moves in love to God and his neighbor into constructive, sacrificial conflict for the gospel. Say this again. Jesus moved in his spirit, grieved in his spirit over the present and future consequences of sin, moves in love, love for God and love for neighbor, into constructive, sacrificial conflict for the gospel. Now, before I unpack this, I, I want to consider another objection that some might have to this passage, and that is people will, someone has actually said this to me before, see that this is what happens when religion gets involved in things. You know, people get angry, and then they get violent with each other, and this is why we have wars. This is, this is, this is why we have wars. This is where religion leads, religion leads to wars. To which I would say, yes, that there have been wars of religion. There have been, absolutely. Sinful wars of religion. But, but tell me, in the last century, who killed, who slaughtered gajillions of people? Who? Let's just go left to right across our maps. Uh, Mussolini, uh, Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, Communist Revolution in China. Who among those were Christian? <laughs> Who among those were even religious? No, I take that back. They were all religious, not about any religion per se. They were, they were all very religious about their own power and about their own particular ism. And millions of people were slaughtered in one century at such numbers that they dwarf all the wars of religion in humanity up to the last century combined. So, that is not to excuse, say, the Second and Third Crusade, but that's only to say that when those people uh, under the flag of Christianity sinfully killed people, and they did, 
they only prove themselves to be sinfully just like the rest of the world. And still only a drop in the bucket compared to what happened just in the last century, this last century of enlightenment atheism. So, by the way, Jesus is not employing unjust violence here. He is employing a just discipline to God's house out of love. That he may teach the nations all that God has commanded us. Again, our great commission was only Jesus's, was only first Jesus's great commission. And by the way, we, not by the way, we do have a great example in the New Testament of a disciple following in Jesus's footsteps here, with a few tweaks for his particular situation. That's Paul in Acts 17. Paul in Acts 17, just as Jesus was provoked in his spirit, as he saw the city, he was grieved. So Paul, when he's walking around Athens, walking around Main Street, Athens, and it says there in Acts 17, 16, that he was provoked in his spirit with an angry love, an anger against what kept the Athenians from God, an anger at the idols, and a love, therefore, for the Athenians. But in Athens, Paul was outside the house of God, and this is, a, this is an important distinction. Inside the church, Jesus has the authority of a shepherd, the great shepherd, to act as a sort of magistrate to evict the squatting robbers. But outside the church, Paul was among the Gentiles. And so he could not just tear down the idols. He didn't have that right. Just as we don't have the absolute right to banish the idols of personal autonomy and sexual perversity from, say, the public schools. That's not the church. But Paul did use, did use the same tool that Jesus did and that we are given every time, say for instance, we take communion, the gospel, signified in bread and wine. This was his weapon. And so he reasoned with the Jews and the merchants, teaching them just like Jesus taught in the temple. And that weapon was what got him in front of the ruling council of Athens, the Areopagus. And there, verses 22 to 31 in Acts 17, he proclaimed to them God. He proclaimed to them God, and in that proclamation, he landed at the same place that Jesus landed back in Luke 19, that of the judgment of God. Judgment is coming. Jesus is risen, Paul says. And when he returns, it won't be for tea. It'll be for judgment. Which at that point, the Areopagus turned on him, just as the temple elites did with Jesus. And they mocked him and dismissed him. But just as with Jesus, others wanted to hear him and teach him more, which Paul did. Again, to be provoked in one's heart about the judgment of God such that one moves in sacrificial love into constructive conflict so that the nations might hear the good news of God, this has always been the way of Christianity. This has always been it. This is the way. After all, just before this scene in Athens, two cities prior in, in Thessalonica, the gospel proclamation is so successful that the Jews of the city round up a mob against Paul and his friends and claim before the city council, it says there, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down. What a compliment. What a badge of honor. They turned the world upside down, have come here also, and Jason has received him, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Well, they got it half right. Christians are not rebellious, and yet at the same time, we do proclaim the governor of California is not king. Jesus is king. 
Christians are never against Caesar, but if we follow Jesus faithfully, all that Jesus is and all of life, then Caesar will think that we are against him. That's when you know you're probably doing it right. Our goal is not to undermine the powers of this age, but newsflash, we proclaim a different king and his kingdom is coming and it will subvert and undermine every other kingdom. Well, and then there's just one more example here, one more example from real life of what Jesus is doing here. Jesus, Paul, looking at various passages in the word, and we find that Jesus is doing nothing different than what all men are called to do in the home, to clear out the idols, to, to create a space for the little Gentile pagans that you've born through your wife to come to God, to come to him, to hear about him, to create space for this to happen, to let the little children come to him and to hear. To, to evict the squatters that would, that would subvert that process, to choke it out. And then once you bring them in, to teach them the word. Ephesians 6 commands fathers to raise up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That command is to the men, fathers. That our families would then that our children would then, that our wives then, that we then would hang on Jesus' every word, that we would hang our very lives on his words. All the while, in the discipline that fathers uh, exercise in their homes, all the while governed by the word. All the while governed by the word, just as Jesus is here. In every way, in every moment, Fathers are commanded, even in our homes, to engage in constructive conflict with the idols of our age to draw the children to God. Okay, so we, we are supposed to follow in Jesus' step. No matter who we are, we're charged by Jesus to follow him as his disciples into constructive conflict out of love for God and out of love for neighbor in order to make space to, to clear out the idols of our age in order to make space for the Gentiles to come in to engage in constructive, sacrificial conflict. Okay, so why don't we? Why don't we? Why, why are we not like this? Why does this passage feel so foreign to us? Well, I can think of five reasons, which I'll share briefly. Number one, that we are misled. We've been taught in the past that the kingdom of God is not a matter of spirit and power, but about being nice. They will know we are Christians by our niceness. But the song says, love, love. And the love that Jesus exercises here inevitably leads him to conflict with the powers of his age, with the elites. You cannot make niceness an inviolable command of your life and follow Jesus. That does not work. It's not Christianity, and it doesn't work. That's number one. We've been misled. Number two, we've been enervated. Enervated, which is just a $10 word to say our energy has been stolen from us. How? Mostly by porn mostly by porn. 
Proverbs 31.3, we have given our strength to digital men and women, and we have none left over to stand in real love and courageously sacrifice ourselves for the nations, for the mission of God. We're sapped. We've already been sacrificed, not for God, but for that demon goddess, pornography. Number three, we've been miseducated. Our public schools are designed not, not, and this is no, if, if you're a public school teacher, I'm not talking about you. Praise God, you're there. But our public school system was designed not to make men like Jesus, but to condition people to be compliant servants of the state. And then we're shocked, shocked to realize, to see that we then have a generation of compliant servants of the state. How did that happen? Where did that come from? A generation of pornographied sluggers who yell in the street, a lion is in the street, a lion is in the street, where there's no lion. Proverbs 22, 13. So we are misled, we are innervated, we are miseducated, and we are enslaved. All of this in an atmosphere of enslavement. I know you're enslaved, and I know I am, because our tax, bracket, our tax rates are over 10%. Anytime a government demands that number, that number that God prescribed for his people to give to his church, it has taken the role of God, no matter, and, and whenever a government takes the role of God, it no longer serves the people, it demands that the people serve it. We've traded our freedom for bigger flat screens and solid pensions because we want the government to keep our interest rates low and keep the stuff coming. When minimalism becomes a religion, you can know that we are enslaved. We're enslaved to our stuff. We're enslaved to money. We don't want to risk it. So we are enslaved, and lastly, we are malnourished. We are malnourished. In Numbers 14, after spending all that time in Egypt... After Israel is saved, they would not go out to battle because, Moses said, they disobeyed the command of God. And they disobeyed because they disbelieved the promise of God. And we, we are too often too much like them, malnourished in our souls from, from the new life that can only come from digesting the gospel for ourselves. The, the word of God, but, we, but, but not just the word of God like a bare set of facts, but the word of God with Christ and his gospel at the center. We're malnourished. The giants of the land are too big, therefore, to us, too scary. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? At least the government gives me free internet to keep the porn flowing freely and the pills to keep me happy. The only way that is solved, the only way any of these are solved, the only way any of these get, we get over them, we get past them, we get unenslaved from them is by the gospel, by faith in this Christ who has gone before us and made a way for us. So all of these things is why I'm convinced God is bringing such chaos all around us in our world and our culture because we Christians have been content to repent in the past only, only back to the place where we first started sowing what we're reaping right now. We, we only want to repent back to the way things were back in, I don't know, whatever time period you think everything was perfect. But that ain't it, chief, because that point, we were sowing what we are reaping now. 
What is needed today among God's people is repentance back to God. Not to the 1950, the year 1954 or 1992, whatever you think is awesome. But to, the, to God and to his word, and that his word would reign over, that he would reign over us through his word in every single aspect of our lives, every thought, every motive, every action. And, I, and I'll tell you, if we would, man, God is so tightly wound to spring blessing on people who repent like that. It's, you don't even finish the sentence. And he's, here you go, kid, my beloved child, here you go. We must repent back to biblical Christianity, to the whole of Christ leading us in all of our lives. This is exactly what we must do. Jesus' act here in Luke is only foreign to us because of how far we have drifted as a people. Okay, so, so what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, first, we repent. I've already said it. We repent. Actually, let me say it more specifically, we should ask God for repentance. 2 Timothy 2.25, Paul says that it's actually God that grants repentance. So the first thing we ought to do is ask God to grant us repentance, which isn't a cop-out. That's faith. And then secondly, we should then take steps forward in faith, believing that as we take these steps, God will meet us with repentance. That's what faith looks like. So, all right, how do we apply this today? Because after all, the temple is gone, right? The temple's gone. Where's the temple? Where is the temple? Shane said right here. He's exactly right. In you, we are the temple. We are the temple of God. The early Christians, after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, carried on the words of Jesus from, from Jeremiah, only now applying it to themselves. We are the temple of God, and therefore, where is the court of the Gentiles? But in your life and mine. Where is now the court of the Gentiles? The temple has not gone away. There is only one people of God, there's only one Israel, and there's only one temple ever. So if it's in your life, then, then guess what? The court of the Gentiles is your dinner table. The court of the Gentiles is now your back patio. The court of the Gentiles is now your calendar. The court of the Gentiles now needs to show up in your cubicle, in your budget, in your life. The first step of faith must be to take a whip to our own lives and to make room again for the Gentiles. Is there room in your life for the Gentiles? Is there room in your calendar? Is there room in your budget? Is there literally room in your house for hospitality to the nations that live perhaps on your street? Or is your life so crowded with stuff that God would say, you are actually committing violence against the nations? Now, I get this. Again, it's a hard word. I get this. But God only gives hard words to his children so that we might experience times of refreshing from him, Acts 2.30. So, one way that, that we might sometimes clutter up our lives, 
give one example here that, that touches on a lot of things, and that is to be imbalanced by, to be um, filled with an imbalanced attention to political matters. I say imbalanced because on the one hand, it's true that everything is political. Everything has a political element to it. But politics engaged in without regard for what's upstream from it, without regard for who God is and how God works and how people work, can distract us from what would be most profitable for the kingdom. What do I mean? I mean this because politics is downstream from culture. Culture, whatever politics you see, that's the child of the culture. Political candidates are simply the face of the culture reflecting in the the reflected face in the waters of the pool of governance. But where does culture come from? It comes from whatever that people worships. Whatever that people worships. If politics is downstream from culture, culture is downstream from what we worship. And it's not if we worship something, but what it is. Whether we worship the living God or something else, like environmentalism or our own autonomy. So the only reason we are battling in the political arena For instance, whether or not to allow infanticide is that we have a culture that long ago decided that personal autonomy is God. That's why. We worship personal autonomy, especially for women. Especially women. So what matters most and what what gives you the most bang for your buck in the culture and in politics, in the world, is if you can change what the people worship. That would make the most change. Well, what matters most, what matters most is what that people worships. The culture is the way it is because the temple of God has been for so long clogged with the pursuit of money and stuff. We've been distracted with the entertainment and sex and self-absorption and our worship that the church has been self-absorbed and how we do church we've been self-absorbed and we have made it all about us. No wonder the culture is the way it is. No wonder because the very people that we complain about cannot find a place in the temple of God to get their questions answered and to come and worship him because the court of the Gentiles is too clogged with stuff, with distraction. So that's not to look past the fact that our culture is nuts. Our culture is crazy. When a people stop believing in God, it's not that they believe in nothing, it's that they will then believe in anything. And we are seeing that all around us. All around us. And at the same time, it's not that they will then become a little worse, only breaking a few more of God's commandments. They will break all of God's commandments. So to the question of infanticide, we should learn to say in public to our legislatures, outside their office doors, no. Sir, ma'am, with all due respect, this is barbaric. No. And yet, here's the balance. Our culture got here by worship, by worshiping the gods of self, sex, and the autonomy especially of women. And thus, the only way we get out of this is by worship. We worshiped our way into this. We worship our way out of it. 
And that change will only come by proclaiming and teaching that there is such a thing as sin, God's own character being the standard as set forth in his word, and that the law of that word was ratified by the king of that law when he was risen from the dead. And one day he will return and he will judge the world by that law. And that's, of course, the point in our gospel when our world, too, will mock you and laugh at you and cast you out of their temple, you intolerant bigot. But after you've dusted yourself off and danced a little jig, celebrating the fact that now you look just like Jesus, you'll realize that you're still alive, and then you'll realize that there's someone hanging by you that wants to hear more, and you'll be ready. Who is this Jesus whom you follow? And you can say, well, I was once lost. I was once that Gentile separated from God, no hope, dead, dead in my trespasses and sins. Dead. How how much can a carcass do for himself to save himself? Nothing. I was helpless. And God in his infinite mercy came to me, came to me and made a way for me to enter into the very presence of God. And he did that by bearing my sins on himself, the Lamb of God. And he he took all the, all the stains that would have gone with me into eternity, the stains for my sins, and he washed them off. I never could have, I would have scratched for all eternity, and I never could have taken them off, and he washed them all with his blood. And when he died, he did more than that. He did more than go out the city and, and be killed for me there shamefully. But on that day when he died, the temple curtain was torn in two An entrance was made into the very holy of holies now for me, a Gentile foreigner. In him, God made a place for me. And now he is raised from the dead. And because I am in him, now I am seated with him in the heavenly places, which means I reign with him in two places. If you are in Christ, you now reign with him in two places, one in the heavenly places at the right hand of the Father, and you now reign with him on earth. But how did Jesus reign on earth? He reigned with a crown of thorns. So especially to you men, we are called to be the head. We are called to go first. We are called to sacrifice because when you reign on earth, when you reign as the head, The head is where the crown of thorns goes. So I reign now with the crown of thorns. I reign now heading into constructive conflict in order to love my my God and my neighbor in order to teach them. And I know that's going to bring me into inescapable conflict with the elite powers of this world. And yet so be it, for so there went my Lord. So there went my Lord. But I will not fight with my fist. I will fight with bread and wine. Not to earn anything with God, but as Paul said in Philippians 3.12, not that I've I've attained this, not that I've figured everything out yet about about entering into constructive conflict. Probably criticize me 17 times a month about, about this issue. Not that I've already obtained this or already been made perfect, but I press on. I I press on towards the goal. Why? Because Christ Jesus has already made me his own because I'm already secure. So I don't do this to earn anything. I do this in hope, in faith, and his coming reward to me. 
Again, I'm not perfect, and you're not perfect. Uh, But better to be in the arena, raising the Jolly Roger in the name of the Lord, under his yoke of mercy and forgiveness, and learning from him as we go. Because there's, there's no other way to live. There's no other way to live. Every other life is enslavement. That's the only freedom there is. And it's the life that Christ calls us to. It's the life that he leads us on. Um, except that Jolly Roger isn't a skull and crossbones. It's a, it's a cross. <laughs> well, let me pray. Father, I, <clears throat> I, I know how this lands on me, and I, I f- myself feel challenged at every turn from my own, my own words here today. So I, I pray that you would start with me. Don't start with anybody else. Please start with me and grant me repentance where I need it. Please move me further along on this trajectory that you've graciously placed me on towards your upward call for me, for us, in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And please do this such that that you get all the glory from it, that the nations would be called in, that the nations would come in and they, they would truly be converted, that they would be converted to be true disciples of you. So do this in such a way that we see that it is you doing it, As we see you doing it, we would have the joy of little children. We would be giddy in our souls for your power moving amongst us. So please grant us this, we pray. Grant us all of these things and grant us even more than we can think to ask right now, we pray. For you are a generous, generous Father. Amen. Amen. Two two words of of, uh, encouragement as we go. As you walk out of here, if you are in Christ, you walk out with the privilege of knowing that if anyone confesses his sins, that God is faithful and just to not only forgive him of his sins, but to cleanse him of all unrighteousness. Wonderful promise. So go out today resting, Sabbathing in that promise, number one. And number two, if you are a man, that's a good thing. (laughs) <laughs> it's a good thing it's a good thing it's a good thing if you're a woman but I kind of wagged my finger today at men it's a good thing that you're a man it's a good thing that you are here and it is a good work that God is doing in you so go confident in God's work in you man or woman walk by faith in his mercy expecting him to do great things go in that peace amen Amen.